Hey guys. Hey. Howdy. Thank you for those comments, Anita. Wunderbar. Uh, welcome to talk three, or is it talk 25? Because we did 22 talks on Mark 1 to 6 in 2019. So this is really talk 25 in the series. <clears throat> uh, last week, we, or last time, we looked at second half of chapter 7 where Jesus was moving through Gentile lands up to Lebanon where he met the Syrophoenician woman and then down to the Greek area of the Decapolis where he healed a deaf mute man. Uh, Jesus' miracles are coming fast and thick in this section of Mark. Today I want to look at what we just read, chapter 8 verses 1 to 21. Jesus Jesus is still in Gentile lands and he feeds 4,000. Now, look at those first nine verses. Does something sound familiar? What's, what's familiar about this first nine verses? Is it, is it Jesus? Is the answer Jesus? No, the answer is not Jesus. <clears throat> That's true. When, when have we seen that before? The feeding of the 5,000. All right, so thank you. We had the feeding of the 5,000, which sounds very, very similar to this feeding of the 4,000. Now, it's frequently argued by scholars that this, therefore, is a second version of the same event. And it's not historical fact, therefore. We've previously had the feeding of the 5,000, now it's the feeding of the 4,000. So some scholars are saying that originally it was one story and that as the story was told and retold, it morphed into two stories. And Mark has unwittingly taken both of those stories and put them in his gospel. And when you look at them, they are similar. They're both miraculous feedings, they're both in a remote area... They both have the question, how many loaves do you have? There's the command to recline, which is similar. Uh, The prayer and the participation of the disciples is similar. There's also the phrase, people ate and were satisfied. And in both, leftovers are gathered, the crowd is dismissed, and Jesus gets into the boat. So many see these similarities as proof that this, in fact, is the same story as in chapter 6. But there are some important differences we need to account for. Five loaves and two fish versus seven loaves and a few fish. And the word here in chapter 8 for fish is different. It means smaller fish or sardines. The number of people is different. In the first it was 5,000 men. Here it's 5,000 people. And in the first feeding, the men are there for one day with Jesus. Here it's been three days. In the first, it was springtime and the grass was green, I think which is a reference to Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Here, there's no mention of green grass or the season. In the first, Jesus puts the people into very specific groupings, which was like Israel in the desert under Moses. Not in this story. Um, The number of the basketfuls left over is different in this story. Even more important, in the first one, Jesus has compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Here in this story, Jesus has compassion 
because the crowd has been with him for three days without food. And there's no reference to sheep without a shepherd. In the first feeding, the disciples recognised the hunger of the people. In this story, it's Jesus who discerns the need and takes the initiative. I think all of this suggests that this is indeed a second miracle, um, a different miracle. And this argument that this is a single event that has morphed into two separate events fails to realise that in the storytelling culture of Israel at that time, which was very, very disciplined, they were an oral culture where they passed on traditions orally by speaking, and they had all these ways of doing that accurately that they were trained in. And what this what these scholars fail to realise is that numbers were very firm in that tradition. Numbers were a great, strong anchor for the storytelling. (laughs) So you wouldn't expect 5,000 to morph into 4,000, five loaves to become seven loaves, two fish to become a few fish, one day to become three days. Other aspects of storytelling might sometimes morph, but numbers were usually a very strong consistent in the way they memorise these stories and pass them down diligently. So I think this is a different account. (laughs) So why are there so many similarities? I think Mark is being very purposeful with these similarities. He wants us to see how similar this feeding is to the feeding of the 5,000. We talked about this last time. In the first story, it was Israel that Jesus was feeding. In this story, it's the Gentiles, the non-Israelites. And Mark is stressing that the Gentiles are receiving the same compassion and the same ministry from Jesus as the Jews did. And that the division between Jews and non-Jews is breaking down through Jesus. Hallelujah. And in the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus is responding to Gentile need just as he has responded to Jewish need. And this is what Mark wants us to see, that Jesus is the bread of life for the whole world and not just the Jews. So I don't think it's accidental that this story is in in Mark's Gospel. And notice this feeding of the 4,000 highlights the desperate nature of the Gentiles. They've been with Jesus three days with nothing to eat. That is beyond just being hungry, right? And whatever food they brought with them would have been well and truly gone. And so they are hungry beyond belief. Jesus fears that they will collapse if they send them home and that they will die. Such is their hunger and such is the distance to the nearest uh, settlements. They are in a wilderness area. So Jesus sees their desperate need and has compassion on them. And we see again, just as we saw in the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, we see again the disciples' spiritual insensitivity. When Jesus is concerned about this physical state of these Gentiles and the fact that they won't be able to make it home in their current state of hunger, verse 4, the disciples ask again, Well, where can we get enough food in this wilderness area to feed 4,000 people? How could the disciples 
be so foolish? Hadn't they just witnessed Jesus feeding 5,000 in the wilderness back in chapter 6? Wouldn't they naturally assume that Jesus can miraculously feed these people as well? Now, I want to hold off on answering this question for a moment because I think Mark wants us, the readers, to also be asking, how is it that these disciples are not expecting Jesus to do another miraculous feeding in the wilderness? But I reckon we can't be too hard on the disciples because we do the same thing. I reckon we have a crisis, we cry out to God in utter despair, in desperate need, and he miraculously and wonderfully provides for us. Then 18 months later, we go through another crisis and we forget that God has before miraculously and wonderfully provided for us. And so we're not expecting God to provide for us again. And so we cry out to God again, not expecting that he will miraculously and wonderfully answer our need, but again, he miraculously and wonderfully answers our need. But then we forget that again until next time. You see, the pattern of our lives is very similar to these disciples. I think Mark wants us to ask why the disciples don't naturally assume Jesus would miraculously feed these people just as he'd fed the 5,000 earlier. And the next two episodes are really answering that question. So look at these. Okay, next we come to Mark chapter 8, 11 to 13. It's interesting. This is very abrupt. Verse 10, Jesus got in the boat with the disciples to go to another region. And all of a sudden, we jump to verse 11. Uh, The Pharisees come and begin to question Jesus. The Pharisees have been absent for a while. And now, all of a sudden, they're abruptly back on the scene. (laughs) To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Now, notice what's happening here, both geographically. Can we get that map up? And symbolically, we've left the Gentile Uh, lands where there's been a very positive response to Jesus. The Syrophoenician woman and the feeding of the 4,000. And then as they come back into Galilee to a Jewish region, notice the harsh distinction between the Gentile positive reception of Jesus and these Pharisees. The Pharisees come back to try to trap Jesus. By now we know about the Pharisees. They have no interest in learning from Jesus. We've already seen back in Mark chapter 3 that after Jesus healed the man with the withered hand in the synagogue, the Pharisees join with the Herodians and are seeking to kill Jesus. So basically, the Pharisees have chosen sides. So here when they come back onto the scene to question and test him, which we've seen many times, They're trying to create a situation where Jesus fails, where Jesus is trapped. They're trying to undo Jesus. 
So they come to test him and ask him for a sign from heaven. It's hard to miss the irony here, right? They're asking for a sign from heaven. In other words, they're asking for proof or something from God that authenticates who Jesus is and what he's been saying. They're wanting proof or evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. That's common in the Old Testament, right? The great figures of God were accompanied by miraculous signs. And Moses is a classic example of that in Israel's history. So the Pharisees wanting signs to accompany Jesus' ministry isn't horrible or dismissive in itself. In fact, Jesus has been doing amazing signs uh, to indicate who who he is. His miracles, he has said, have been evidence that he does come from God, that he is the Messiah, that he does have authority to forgive sins, which only God can do. Um, that he has the authority to reinterpret the meaning of the Sabbath, that he has authority over all creation in the calming of the storm. As we've said before, these are things that only God can do. So Jesus' miracles do authenticate who Jesus truly is. But the problem here is, even though authenticating signs are common as evidence for God and his presence, we shouldn't think of them as definitive proof. Deuteronomy 13 warns against being deceived by the signs of the false prophets, right? And the real proof of a true prophet is that what they say comes true. And also, it's prohibited to ask for a sign in the Old Testament, And there are exceptions, like Isaiah tells King Ahaz to ask for a sign from God. But Israel is warned, generally, to not demand God do a sign in order to prove his commitment to them. They are not to ask God for a sign. Deuteronomy 6.16 says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that's exactly what Israel did in Exodus 17. They put God to the test in the wilderness, complaining about a lack of water. And so Moses struck the rock, trying to force God to do something, and water gushed out. And so when the Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign, it's like Israel in the wilderness putting God to the test, demanding God do something to show evidence. And remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. In Matthew's account, Jesus responds to Satan's temptation with, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Because Satan was trying to get Jesus to make God do something. Jump off the top of the temple. Force God to rescue you through his angels. Satan was trying to get Jesus to force God to do a sign. And Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so when the Pharisees ask Jesus for a sign, this hints that the Pharisees are like disobedient Israel in the wilderness under Moses, who put God to the test and therefore died in the wilderness and did not enter the promised land. 
I think these hints become shouts when Jesus responds to the Pharisees. Verse 12, he sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Well, this generation was a common way of talking about the disobedient generation of Israel in the wilderness who died and did not enter the promised land. Moses called them a crooked and depraved generation, Deuteronomy 32 verse 20, and next week we'll see Jesus using that same expression. So Jesus is saying the Pharisees are like that crooked and depraved generation. Wow. So the Pharisees demand a sign from heaven. And of course the irony is Jesus has just been feeding people in the wilderness. Just as God provided manna from heaven in the desert under Moses, Jesus has just done that, both to the Jews and to the non-Jews. What more sign do you want than that? But the Pharisees are so blind, they come and ask for another sign. So when Jesus talks about this generation asking for a sign, he says, truly I tell you no sign will be given to it. This declaration that no sign will be given to it doesn't mean that God won't provide authenticating miracles to the people. He's been doing that all the way through in all of Jesus' miracles. And more miracles are still coming. So yes, Jesus will continue to do signs, right? So why does he say to the Pharisees, no sign will be given you? I think Jesus is saying, I'm not going to jump through your hoops. I've given you enough already. I'm not going to do a special sign for you Pharisees. And I'm kind of getting excited about this because that's exactly what people do today. They come to God and put him to the test. Why doesn't Jesus just write in the sky that he is real? And then we would believe. But we know that they probably would not believe. That so many of those things are just a rouge. People are actually not wanting to believe. They're trying to trap us as Christians. They come with a posture of arrogance, demanding that God jump through their hoops with no intention of being persuaded and with no interest in the signs that have been provided, that are recorded in the Gospels. All of the things that Jesus has already done and said. And Jesus says, okay, no sign will be given you. Seems to me that movements like the Signs and Wonders movement are fundamentally wrong. That the evidence of the Gospels and Jesus' miracles in the Gospels are sufficient for people to believe in Jesus. And we're not to ask for signs and wonders for ourselves or other people on top of what God has already done or God will do off his own bat. But we're not to ask for them. Here the Pharisees are surrounded by the wonderful works that God has done through Jesus Christ and yet they come and ask for more and they're refused and Jesus I believe, still has the same attitude today. You cannot come to me with that arrogance. 
I am not under your examination. You are under my examination. Do not come to me with that hard-hearted approach. Come begging for mercy. Come wanting to know the truth. Come desperately in need like the Gentiles were in the wilderness. Come acknowledging your need like the Syrophoenician woman. Don't come in that high-handed posture of demanding that I jump through your hoops. And it's foolish to try and make God and his messengers speechless. One day you'll stand before him on the judgment day and you will be speechless. And on that day you won't be asking your questions. You will be silent before the God of the universe. So there's a real warning here for us. Okay, let's move to Mark chapter 8, 14 to 21. Finally, and we come back to this question, why don't the disciples seem to remember or understand or expect Jesus to do a miracle of the feeding of the 4,000? And the question starts to get answered in this next section. Pick it up at verse 13. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. So they're in the boat in verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. This is an interesting interaction between Jesus and his disciples. It's almost comical. It's a bit Monty Python-esque. The disciples are in the boat and the first thing we're told is that they've forgotten something. Uh, There's a strong theme of forgetfulness and not remembering in this whole section. And remembering is a key aspect of our faith, which we'll get back to. Uh, We need to remember. And the disciples have forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf that they have with them in the boat. So the picture is the disciples are talking about how they don't have enough bread. And they're worried about that. And they've forgotten to bring the bread. And Jesus hears the conversation and says, Be careful. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And then the disciples are looking at each other thinking, where did that comment come from? And they say, verse 16, it must be because we have no bread. Aware of this discussion, Jesus says, why are you talking about not having any bread? That's not what my comment is about. Do you not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Now, this reference to not seeing or understanding and their hearts, the disciples' hearts being hardened, and then the next two questions, do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? Jesus has said this kind of thing all the way through Mark's Gospel. So the disciples are concerned about their lack of bread and their concern shows an ignorance and lack of faith and a hardness of heart. And this happens on a boat again. We've seen their ignorance revealed twice on a boat crossing before of the Sea of Galilee. 
This is the third and last time. And what Jesus accuses them of doing is being more mindful of what they lack rather than seeing the significance of who they are with and the wonderful provision that he can give them. And this is like us. We see all these wonderful things that God has done. We experience his marvellous provision again and again and again and again. And we still walk in our own resources and worry whether we'll have enough bread for lunch. So they're debating and discussing their lack of bread and the fact that they're debating and discussing their lack of bread indicates that they're not understanding the significance of what Jesus has been doing. It indicates that they're closer to the Pharisees in this respect than to a follower of Jesus. That they are closer to being hardened, to having a mindset that is in line with the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, the reference to Herod here, remember the Pharisees and the Herodians have united in their desire to kill Jesus, that their stress on their own traditions, their own power and their own way of doing things has motivated them to want to kill Jesus. And Jesus has been judging them and saying that their hearts are far from God. And so Jesus rebukes his disciples in the boat saying that they're not understanding in a similar way to how the Pharisees and Herod have not understood. This is exactly the same as Jesus' rebuke of the disciples back in the storm as they crossed the Sea of Galilee. And they were panicking, thinking that they would die. And Jesus says, do you not have faith? Do you still not see? And here, it's very similar. They're worried about not having enough bread. And Jesus says, beware, beware, be on guard against this attitude that you have, which is just like the Pharisees. Now, yeast is a small bit that can infect and affect the whole loaf. I think that's the picture here. And then Jesus couples this with a call to remember. And I don't think we should rush by this. This call to remember is a biblical aspect of faith. Throughout the Old Testament, there's that stress on remember. Remember the covenant that God has put in place. Remember his promises to his people. And the Israelites are to perpetually remember what the Lord did when he brought them up out of Egypt. So I think this call to remember is referring to not just um, did you forget what happened just a few weeks ago when I fed the 4,000. Jesus is also saying that you're not remembering that the people of God are supposed to remember the great acts of God. All that God has done. And this act of remembering in the biblical understanding is to be coupled with a call to trust God with our future. That we trust in what God is doing and will do because of what he has done and because of his character. 
And then he reminds them, the five loaves turned into food for 5,000 with all those basketfuls left over. The seven loaves I made into food for 4,000 with all those basketfuls left over. And then in verse 21, he ends with, do you still not understand? And I think what Jesus is saying here is they don't. They don't understand. And he's begging the question, do we understand? And he's saying that the disciples have some understanding, but they don't have a full understanding. And if we were to draw a line between perfect understanding all the way through to the hardness and rejection of the Pharisees. The disciples are more down this end towards the Pharisees than they are to a proper understanding. They're tilting this way. And so when we ask this question, how could they not understand? And why were they not just assuming that Jesus would feed the 4,000? And why were they worried about not having enough bread in the boat? (laughs) I think Mark is giving us the answer here that the Pharisees demanded a sign because they had rejected Jesus and who Jesus says he is and their hearts are now hard and the disciples aren't quite understanding who Jesus is either and they are in grave danger of that bit of yeast working through the whole dough. Beware of this lack of faith and the disciples aren't quite understanding who Jesus is. They're still not getting it. And so often that is the case with us. We just don't understand who it is with us in the boat that if he provided for 4,000, he can provide for us. He can provide our every need until the point of full satisfaction. He is the bread of life. Come to me, all who are hungry, and I will give you the bread of life. Come to me, all who are thirsty, and I will give you living water that will well up into eternal life. And through his death on the cross, he is the provider of everything that we could possibly need. His resurrection, the pouring out of the Spirit, he journeys with us. He really is in the boat with us. Even today, he is the bread of life. Let's beware of the willful blindness of the Pharisees and let's work at remembering all that God has done. For that, we need each other. We need the gathering. We need our gospel communities. We need our DNA groups. We need our personal Bible reading. We need to remind ourselves of the gospels again and again and again. We need to pray. We need to be in Christian community because we are people who so easily forget who it is 
who is in the boat with us. Hebrews 3 verse 8 warns, Do not harden your hearts as Israel did in the wilderness. Feeling like asking questions? I'll give you a moment. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. And there's always so in the feeding of the five thousand Jews, there's all these echoes of the story of Israel. The number twelve, the twelve tribes of Israel. The fact that Jesus organised them in groups on the green grass. That's how Moses organised people, you know, how Moses organised people in the wilderness. And it's the green grass of Psalm 23. Um, and he says, you are like sheep without a shepherd. They are the sheep of Israel without a shepherd. And he is the true shepherd. But all of those echoes are not in this story. This story focuses on the absolute hunger and need of the Gentiles. They're desperate Hunger. Uh, so there's, but either way, God provides uh, through Jesus Christ for both groups. Yeah, and the seven uh, in Jewish folklore, there were seventy nations. So the number seven probably represents the whole world. Yeah. Is, it, is there more to the understanding of the word? in text like is it is it is it pointing to a, like a, a wider understanding of, of what yeah. it to remember than how we think about it yeah it's just all those uh, statements by the prophets who keep saying remember remember the covenant with Moses remember the covenant with David remember that God rescued you from Egypt Remember the mighty acts of God. Remember, 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 remember all the way through the Old Testament. And so when Jesus uses the word like remember, it's probably pregnant with meaning. You know, it's, it's probably got all that history in mind. I have one other question. This is, he says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Yes. Yeah, just that they, the Herodians and the Pharisees were plotting to kill Jesus together. They had united together to see how they could see Jesus killed. Uh, and it's that hardness of heart. We also saw that Herod beheaded John the Baptist, even though Herod knew that John was a prophet of God. He nonetheless had him executed so that he would look good in front of his guests. In, in, at the feast. And that's the kind of hardness of heart that we are warned against too. That we can slip into that if we fail to remember. This is why we have communion as well. We need to keep remembering. Yeah. Yeah. 
Hugo um, has been asking me so many questions. <laughs> how would uh, we answer people who are genuinely seeking God yeah. um, and believe a sign would help convince them to have faith? Yeah, I think we've... Uh, how do we talk to people who are genuinely seeking God and we believe a sign would help them to come to and faith? They and they believe it as well. Yeah, I, I just say, here, here are the signs. Here, here they are, the New Testament... So the New Testament, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is the evidence that God has provided. So I point to that. And if they are genuinely seeking God, they'll be very satisfied with those signs. Yeah. I th- that's how I see it. If God wants to do something, he can do it. But it's inappropriate for us to come demanding or asking for a sign. Leave that to God. He has already provided so many signs. Yeah. Yeah. How do you reconcile that with like Thomas and how he said it's okay to ask for proof? Yeah, that's still that's still in the uh, signs of that Jesus has provided. So the resurrection of Jesus, bodily resurrection, is the final sign. So, yeah, Jesus calls it the sign of Jonah in Matthew's Gospel, that though he die, he will rise again, and that's, that's the ultimate sign. So, yeah, we want to point out that conversation that Thomas has with Jesus uh, and say, yeah, there it is. Jesus rose from the dead. That's why we believe what we believe. It seems like um, there's, there's a lot of... Uh significance for us in like discernment of, of sort of you know people that are you know presently unbelieving that we're having conversations with or in relationship with and yeah uh, have genuine hang-ups and some, sometimes it's it might be that real hardness of heart sort of and then there might yeah. be those others that have this kind of hunger and this longing to know and it's, it's interesting yeah, yeah. Interesting to think about how to how to approach both of those. You know, some sometimes the more effective word is the hard the hard word that kind of cuts through the yeah the unbelief, and then and then sometimes it's more just genuinely trying to field the questions and then help people wrestle. Uh, absolutely. Wrestle through. Yes, it's, sometimes it's genuinely... If people are genuine, we want to be gentle with them and, and help them through. So all I'm saying, I guess, is just that we want to show them Jesus yeah. <laughs> and what he did and what he said. That's, those are the authenticating sign, miraculous signs <coughs> that uh, we're given. We're also given the church... As the, as, as the sign of love, you know. Um, so Paul talks about that right through the scriptures as well. And, um, but we, we, we don't, we're not providing signs that God isn't providing, right? <laughs> God has provided all these signs. We don't need more than that. Yeah. Cool. I think Anita's going to pray.